Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome once again to Better World Leaders. And today's conversation is really a fascinating one. A journey through a man's life, a journey into making the world better, and particularly a journey through the power of stories to shift perspectives, models, and engage with different ways of doing things. And let's face it, doing better things is really what this season of Better World Leaders is all about. This is a conversation with Chris Andrew, the general manager of an indigenous food production company, Black Duck Foods. And this one really is a fascinating long yarn. So strap in, get ready. There's a heck of a lot of wisdom to come here. Not a lot of it from me, but a heck of a lot from Chris. See you soon. Chris Andrew, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. And thank you very much for making the time and space to join us here today in Sydney. Pleasure to be here. And look, we've got, I know, a long and interesting yarn ahead of us. We've just sort of started and kind of held off on getting too far into it before we walked into the studio this morning. So I'd just like to start the conversation that we can share with the world by just asking you to share a little bit of your journey to join us here today. Yeah, happy to. Um, I guess it's a story about old dogs, new tricks. I won't go into the deep, dark past, but uh, as a young engineer, this is not where I thought I'd be and certainly not what I'd be talking about. So having gone through a bit of a journey through the oil industry, I, I found myself like all budding capitalists that it was time to get into the banking world to earn even more money. And that in a lot of ways was a, was a really enjoyable journey because it took me to different parts of the world. It allowed me to have children overseas and see different cultures and hone my skills a lot around different sorts of narratives, a way of seeing assets and seeing the way that you can develop things for a gain, you know, and and often in banking, it's all about a monetary gain, but it develops a lens that you can look at other things through. And I think I've drawn on that later in life, but a plane going into a building that I had Christmas parties in sort of set a train of going, maybe this is not the job I want to be in all the time and probably not the position I want to be in. So coming back to Australia, like all good lazy buggers, I found going back to uni a great thing. So I picked a course that I could do for a couple of years while I figured out what I was going to do, and uh, that was teaching. And I think that was a great opportunity because it had to teach me a bit more about myself and what I wanted to do, as much about how to actually go and share a yarn with young people. Part of probably the experiences that sort of set some things off for me was a really wonderful opportunity to go do some work in a school for kids with incredibly challenging um, barriers to their life and go and teach swimming. So I was sort of one of the only men on staff as a sort of a volunteer swim instructor and I got kids coming in for this joy of coming to experience the water. I also was able to rely on a little bit of my scientific knowledge to realise that 
most of that pee wasn't going to kill me. So you just believe in the science and, and enjoy yourself, but, but celebrate kids just having pure joy in an environment that they love, that they can come to in their own sort of context. So that sort of set me on a path about how you actually relate and use your skills to build a better world. So I did, I did teach a bit and I was probably a lazy teacher because I thought I knew it all. Um, and I'd watched Robin Williams. So <laughs> of course, you know, teaching my teacher never happened for me, but in those sorts of experiences, you're having this sort of wonderful conversation with young men. And that was a school I was at. And I guess the way I was trying to teach these young men maybe didn't sort of brush up as well against sort of the ideals of the school of getting the top HSC mark. So I was a bit of a maverick and I don't think that's in the Tom Cruise mould. Um, so I was able to sort of move on and and look at where I could sort of start employing some of engineering, some of finance and some of a sort of a, a burgeoning respect for community and the notion of community and, and, and social sort of enterprise and development. So I, I went off and um, did a lot of work in the Pacific for a number of years doing projects around accelerating what was then known as Millennium Development Goals and uh, three years sort of going back and forth from Sydney to the Pacific and then juggling a family back home sort of led me to come back and find some environmental work back in Australia and pretty quickly that led me to collaborating with some Indigenous organisations around you know, for the conversation sort of started with native species and, and it quickly became apparent to me that's a bit of an output. What the outcomes are is what that tree or that shrub or that grass does in terms of transforming the people behind that. I felt like a lot of environmental organisations sort of lost the people for the trees. They lost the story and the humanity that goes into getting trees in the ground. And so I quickly migrated to that type of approach where I could mobilise some of my skills and be invited into an environment to work alongside Indigenous organisations to empower them in a direction that they set the agenda for. So I had a skill set that that, I, that got invited in to do bits and pieces. So that's sort of where my involvement with Indigenous organisations got off and that's led me to some incredible areas and some incredible challenges and some perspectives that I hold in terms of as a ballander, as a white fella, you know, being invited into an Indigenous space where I understand where I can operate and where I understand my perspectives. And it also allowed me to take on board from the current job I do at the moment with Black Duck is also have an association with another organisation that does a very similar thing in terms of walking alongside Indigenous communities in terms of storytelling called Desert P Media. And that gives me a great insight into that invitation again and the strength of what we can do in terms of accelerating, amplifying and supporting you know, stories that start from when stories began and where our role sits in that. So it's, and it's developing and understanding what that sort of inclusiveness might mean. So that's the shorter version of the yarn. <laughs> well, as a short version, uh, I thank you for it. Appreciating you know, a little bit, you know, sort of how rapidly you've sped over some, you know, lengthy chapters and episodes in there. And there's a lot in there, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna unpack most of that. I think in in, in a more expansive mode over the the coming yarn. But I think 
there was the one real sort of salient moment that you expressed very sort of briefly there about, you know, the plane going into the building that you used to have Christmas parties in, which I'm certainly presuming is a 9-11 reference. But I think, you know, we, you, there's this then this pronounced sort of swing into, you know, sort of Indigenous culture and Aboriginal culture and, you know, First Nations culture globally, which is something that I'm, you know, sort of paying ever increasing attention to. So I wonder whether there were other sort of salient moments, these moments that I refer to as moments of meaning that sort of took you down that particular road or accelerated you along it. You know, the the work in environmentalism and, and sort of systems and that kind of thing that could have taken you down any number of routes. Probably. And I guess you move towards the, the spaces of least resistance that you've got an interest in. And um, I think moments for me sort of come, I did a school camp. So along my teaching journey, I ticked all the boxes of the things that I really enjoyed at school. So I acted in the play. I coached the rugby team. I coached the water polo team. I did a bit of camping. And once I ticked all those, it was probably also time to leave education because what was left but to educate young people, and you could only do that for so long. But the thing I did that I really enjoyed camping was getting up to Kosciuszko. And it's a wonderful space, but it's also a real telling reminder that we have a couple metres of a, an of environment that with a couple degrees of climate change, temperature change, we lose that. And it's a very visible thing. I know that occurs... And desertification occurs in salinity of water and the and, and can happen in the coral roof. But a lot of those sorts of things are visual manifestations that we can readily get access to see. Whereas the Alpine district for me signified two meters. You know, might be bigger, might be smaller. But in a signal, there's two meters that that's just gone, never to return. And so it was a real point of that's a real problem. And what I'm hearing from a lot of people telling me the fix, it was a sort of a moral prerogative. You know, we should be doing this and morally obliged to. And maybe my banking career tainted me, but I always felt that morals necessarily didn't guide everybody's decision making. And there can be a financial imperative. You know, if we lose these sorts of things or we're not articulating the financial benefits of, of what we're doing, we're missing an audience that's not hearing part of a language that they need to hear that might motivate them into action. And, and I don't care what motivates them into action as long as the action is actually appropriate. So to broaden the audience, we need a broader conversation, one that moves beyond just sort of morals and obligations, one that, that includes investment language. And through that, you're sort of hoping a little bit of osmosis takes people along that journey as well. So I think that trip certainly set me along the path. And and probably a, another point was working in the Pacific. And this goes back to language and culture again. I was um, funded by a European agency, development agency, to do a project. And they were so fearful that I would overwhelm, you know, the Fijians and talk fast and talk all this financial language. And I think what they missed is the fact that I'd grown up playing rugby. So when I walked into Fiji, we had a common language. And you know, I invited our Baxter, who had then been the most capped prop, to come along and do a talk over there. At one point, we had the president of Fiji attend. So we talked a common language and we were able to sort of bring things through through these sort of common threads. And I can't tell you anything much about Fijian culture, but again, it was an invitation to come in and work there and share a language that whether I could add to the conversation or expand it beyond um, the way they were thinking of that things. And, and we did it through sort of 
this commonality and it just happened to be rugby, you know, could have been food or something like that. But it resonated and I think that sort of made me realise this, this beauty about using language and this beauty about sort of finding common ground to, to find your invitation into somewhere. And I think, you know, people talk about Fiji time. Fiji time moves as fast as it needs to move to get things done. And so many people get frustrated. That's because you haven't been invited in. You know, you're, you're not even appreciating or accepting or talking a language that they understand or, or that they do understand. And they've heard that yarn a hundred times before and know that it's pretty hollow. So there's this opportunity to sort of sit back and, and wait. And when people invite you in, things happen, you know, at a really good sustainable speed because they happen and they get banked and they and they they get owned and they get transcribed into sort of the vernacular of what's sort of normal operating procedures again. So it's a really important thing to sort of step back and when you step into a culture, you've got to operate at that culture's speed. And that's actually better for you because you don't wake up every morning with heartache because it's not meeting your objectives. Your objectives don't count. And that's there's a degrees of learning humility. And I can assure you coming out of banking took me a little while to learn humility. And I'd say the family sort of still would criticise me about my humbleness, but that's sort of within the, the confines of home. But I, I'd hope that outside of that, notwithstanding I'm having to talk about myself, that degree of humility about where we are in the world and the, and the journey we get invited to share with people, we should be appreciating every day. Yeah, 100%. Thank you for that. And, and again, there's a huge amount in there. And at the moment, I'm trying to hold back my curiosity from sort of jumping to not the end, because we're still in it, but the current state. Uh, but just before we, we, we sort of start to motion in that direction, there's something that I've been reflecting on that I'd just like to share from what I've received as you've just been talking about you know, sort of common ground and, you know, sort of looking for sort of means and, and, and pathways to engage with people across different spaces and different cultures and that language can so often be the, the sort of the bridge, you know, sort of between those spaces. And there was a conversation that we had here in relation to the American election last year and looking from three different, you know, sort of North Americans perspectives of, of what the outcome meant and what the, the pathways forward would be. And in each of them, there was a, a sort of a, an examination of what is a way forward towards some semblance of unity and trying to bring these very disparate you know, cultures as exists within you know, the, the, the United States at the moment or the not so United States, perhaps. One of the most, I thought, sort of helpful provocations uh, came from this fabulous woman, Victoria Foster, who's guested on here twice so far. And she talked about finding a way into shared space and having shared ground and then within that establishing common ground. And that this interesting sort of notion of finding common ground and leveraging common ground, that might actually be the desired outcome. But what's the sort of transitional space that you need to move through in order to establish what is meaningful common ground? And that just by sort of coming together and interacting with humility and with appreciation that everybody's got something to offer here and we're here to, you know, sort of basically build understanding of each other. And it's not about tolerance, but it's about appreciating different perspectives that if you can do that and sort of spend enough time in that shared space with values of respectfulness and curiosity and integrity and authenticity and things like that, then perhaps out of that facilitated effectively will come the common ground. It's interesting. I guess there's this notion that the common ground is something you can identify. And I, I guess I, 
my take on that sort of common ground is finding the common story. And it might not be the common story. It's the shared story and it's the richness and diversity of that. And I know in some of the questionnaires you sent me, it's sort of, you know, what was one take? I said, we should stop asking as many questions and just start sharing more stories because stories are really rich and they allow you to go and explore different areas and they allow people to see a little bit more. And questions, I take this from a time where I had an opportunity to do some work within the Royal Courts in London as an expert witness and I was sort of talking with a QC and one of the things you take into a court is you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. So this notion that questioning gives us information, for a lot of questioners, it actually gives us reassurance that we already know what we know. And you see that a little bit in school because, you know, you've got to get the question right. And in a science class, you sort of already know the answer. So there's nothing exploratory in a lot of this sort of work. So the notion of telling a story is that sort of common area, common ground, this notion of commonality and and it's that richness. And in those stories, you find those parts that people associate with. They, they find that part of your humanity. And, you know, I had a wonderful experience in Manangrida, and I don't even know what we were trying to achieve, but it was one of the TAs. And I think before we sort of left the office to resolve whatever might have been the issue, we shared about half a dozen stories. Now, I'm not sure we, we resolved whatever we stepped into that room to try and resolve, but we left with a whole new way of going about trying to fix something else and because we sort of explored it and the richness of what we were trying to share with each other allowed us to take what was the priority of really going on here and and address that and we found sort of a common purpose and a common language and in that being invited into that area they found the part that I could add to so it's not me telling mobs or you or anything I'm good at these things it's here's some stories I can tell And you can pick out the bits that you're interested in and maybe your story will glean a bit more out of that because it's we have this smorgasbord of skills and probably deficiencies and the stories help articulate what those are. And in in a world that is huge system, you know, and and questions tend to sort of be very one-dimensional whereas we operate in a three-dimensional world and, and things interact. And that ability to sort of tell a story gives that richness to the systems that we all operate in. And, yeah, there'll be, you know, yes or no answers sometimes down the track, of course, but I think this is opportunity to sit back and and explore the richness of what these stories tell about people but the environment and the situation you're in and that sort of commonality of that story. You know, now you've got a joined-up story. Now you've got a shared story. To me, that's a really important part and it's not about setting agendas and it's not about setting timeframes. It's about sharing something. So I would hazard a guess that in America there's a lot of storytelling that needs to happen to elicitate some of that common ground in what is probably a very complex area. US politics is so fantastic. I, you know, I, I, I put my hand up here straight away and say I was so enamoured by it all, I signed up to the Washington Post and I'm just continually renewing my subscription um, because I'd like to sort of read it the original story from the original source and it's amazing i you know i just i find it fascinating because i'm here if i was there i'd find it less than fascinating i'd find it pretty bloody depressing and distressing and um quite dangerous but um they live in a glass bowl 
and we're nicely distant away and it's an amazing exercise in self-destruction some days. Absolutely, I think let's just let's just say that we agree on the on on the majority of the US uh, yeah sort of political perspective. But let's put that to one side mm. for a minute because I really want to get into the storytelling and the questions piece with you because I, ju- I just think there's a there's a really interesting piece of discourse to build in there. So coming from the perspective of someone who's essentially built a career through asking questions and someone who you know teaches how to ask questions effectively, how to use questions to provoke change and sustain shifts in behavior, but also does a lot of work with narrative communication and sort of really compelling dialogue. And of course, the most compelling dialogue is stories, right? I I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had there. What I sort of would, would ask initially is if questions can be used to follow the observation of stories to intuit the shared meaning and the link between one's own story and the story that someone's observed, then would that be a beneficial way to use a question? You know, I'm not going to lecture on how people use story and questioning. I would just make my own observation and, and I, you know, by no means I, I ask questions in certain frames, but I, I just I try and check myself. This is this is opportunities where before you ask the question, is there a story that sort of elicits the same type of narrative? And there's a benefit in story because you can take yourself out of it. And and in the role I've got, I get a lot of emails uh, about you know people wanting something, and all, a lot of it I I I I I. It's like yeah, great, delete or file under never to be responded to. And there's this way of telling a story where actually it's this sort of build-up of the more I can take yourself out of it, the more everything else fills in that. And so a question can often be misconstrued as something that still wants to make you the subject. I need this response to your answer. Whereas sort of the story sort of let me share something with you and I can weave that in. And if I don't quite understand that from your story, Maybe you could tell a different sort of version of that story. So, you know, and that they don't all have to be wonderfully crafted stories, but it's a way of sort of sharing your understanding of something and it can be corrected in the subtleties. Or it could be true, but maybe the person on the other end is not obliged to tell you the answer mm. or can't tell you the answer. Or maybe over 250 years has been, been denied the knowledge to give an answer and you're asking them something that is so traumatic in their life. So there's a real, you know, check for us. Every time we want to, we desperately need to know something, why? What's the big hurry? Like maybe there's certain questions in the world that aren't so culturally offensive as like have you paid the bill? Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a story we can talk about, you know, going out of business and things like that. So you might want to fast track some of those sorts of things in your daily life. Or did you get the milk? You know, some of those sort of less than confronting questions are probably useful in daily life. But the notion of where you're in business in sort of a a broader framework, I think there's a real value in that. And it's a way of showcasing the fact that it's not about me, it's not about my goals it's about this sort of shared purpose and, and allows you to actually change your goals because 
sharing a story, you're going to hear another story. You go, okay, so now I'm a lot more educated. All of a sudden, what I think I was trying to achieve, I can shift in. So I'm not as cemented or wedded in to what I thought when I started. And I'd say it'd have to be part of your interviewing process. You will hear a story and say, well, my list of 20 questions just changed because I've heard things and I can share a bit more about myself and that'll elicit another response out of it. But there can be questions you can ask me. It's like, are you going to be here on time? That's pretty legitimate, you know. And if I start with a story, you know probably I'm stuck in Sydney traffic Um, (laughs) because I'm trying to extend it out. So, so there's, you know, there's the cut through, but I think without um, diminishing the value of stories, I think you could put it in a context where it's about finding this common understanding sometimes of what can be quite complex issues Mm. and questions diminish the complexity of some of those issues. Where it's a simple issue, questions are really valid. But I think in terms of some of the, the complexities that we face in the world, where there are competing sometimes factors in a system sort of approach, questions are the last thing you need. Stories are sort of something help us divine some part of a, a pathway through because the questions are framed to get the response I want. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with all of that. And I think just to continue to expand on it, I think a lot of the time the real issue is with the question up front and there's a sort of a lack of appreciation of that we actually need two things either side of a question and they're actually sort of fully evolved skill sets by themselves independent of the skill of inquiry which is what question do I ask how do I ask it when do I ask it why am I asking it and who am I asking it of so the two things sitting either side could be observation and really what you want to be observing is what's the story here Hmm. right what's come before whether that's yesterday or over the last 60,000 years And what follows the question is the listening piece. And arguably, listening is just one of the senses through which we observe. But yeah, how many times have you seen a question asked where there's no intention to listen to the response other than to just solicit the specific piece of information that was the reason that I asked the question? Happens all the time, and I'm probably guilty of it a little bit at the dinner table with the family (laughs) because I'm looking for some reinforcement. But arguably, you see it and you see eyes glaze over, it's it's the same type of interrogation that I've been through in different sorts yeah. of areas. And you, you sort of see it through. And, and, and I had an opportunity working with an organisation that sort of dealt a lot more, say, with, with vulnerable members of the community. The questioning was always about diminishing that mm. person. And, and it's about you're not engaging anybody there. Yeah. It's not, you're, there's no empathy as much as you feel you come from an empathetic organisation, there's very little being communicated. You know, it's, yeah. it's a list tick and arguably the federal government's approach to a lot of things is 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 a question, tick a box. Yeah. Like, really? Seriously? Yeah. You know, th- th- there's a lot more going on than just tick a box. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what you're asking is you're trying to frame it through a particular lens and let's just move through there by ticking boxes. Yeah. So, so you'll, get, you'll get the tick box response and, and in areas where we look for a broader outcome of something positive, we don't see that because the approach is all about tick this box of this question and then we move on. We're not listening. We're We're not not hearing. We're not changing. We're not adapting. And we say it, but we don't mean it. Yeah. And is it simply a question born out of the intention of confirmation bias, which is as long as you tell me what I already know and what I want to hear, we'll accept the I'll find the the audience that will do that for me and I'll motivate certain members of 
communities or elsewhere to give me that response um, and, and I'll set up division. You know, and engagement and consultation are double-edged sword. You know, they're, they're the most used word sometimes and, geez, they mean a lot a lot of different things. And yeah. um, I was in a conversation at the end of last year with an organisation that talking about engagement. I said, well, can we just drop engagement? Why don't we just talk about enterprise and employment? That's a better engagement. They said, that's a real change. So it's about sort of that type of thing. So yeah, it wasn't more of a question. It was a bit more of a, a statement. statement. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's this opportunity to sort of look through what some of these processes are behind the questioning. Yeah. You know? And I think for a lot of people, they've been questioned to death. Sure. Well, I mean, the question that could propel that statement you know, into a modality of action would be how do we move from engagement to enterprise and employment? And then you can test whether or not they actually want to get serious about that or not. Yeah, and there'll be a f- bit of fluff. There's a cynicism in me. Um, so we can go through that process or you just make it a statement. Yeah. So if you're not part of that story... That's Absolutely. fine. I mean, it's you know, we're not not everybody's going to change. Not everybody's going to listen. Not everybody's going to share. Not everybody's going to work towards that sort of common ground. That's that sort of comes back to your US statement. You're not going to win everybody in the US, but they may all come to it a different sort of path. And I look at myself. You know, I'm 57. I didn't start out on this journey, but I came through it quite yeah through different sorts of mechanisms. And I would say, along that path, there are lots of points in time where I never thought I'd be at this point. And I probably uh, a hypocrite at some points, sort of saying what I say now compared to what I was in a previous sort of life, and that's just it. My my story, my yarn has changed, and 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 I'm being flexible. I'm not hung up about the hypocrisy of my journey because it's been about a learning. So I'm, I'm le- I feel I'm less of a hypocrite than somebody that actually just learnt more yeah. and grown, and you know. Like a lot of people were ignorant about a lot of things and ignorance shouldn't be used as an excuse, but, you know, there's a part of me that said maybe we should have gone out and found more. But, you know, for want of a better thing, you don't know what you don't know. The old Donald Rumsfeld's, the unknown unknowns, sometimes you're just not in in frames to actually even comprehend there's this whole world you don't understand. I'm going to frame two questions in a couple of minutes just to start to transition into this world that, you know, you didn't have any knowledge of and you've, you're mm. now moving into expanding your knowledge of. But I'd just like to try and condense a, a, a little story of my own about my ignorance and my lack of appreciation for the story behind a context and the way that I just showed up and started with a question. Mm. And this speaks to a little bit of my story Back in my early 20s, I was doing some conservation volunteering on a turtle sanctuary on the Pacific coast of Guatemala. And there as the white saviour, you know, to help these, you know, poor people understand, you know, the environmental trauma that they were inducing by selling turtle eggs at a market. So I'd been there a few weeks and it started to just get into a point of, I thought, you know, knowledge and understanding so that I could use my extremely, uh, you know, sort of basic Spanish to inquire of the locals who are often not in an antagonistic or aggressive way, but just on the beach at the same time as the volunteers. And it was kind of like whoever gets there first to the nest, we would take a nest back and incubate it and then release the little ones into the ocean. They would take the eggs back to their village and then to the market and sell them. And this this one guy that I'd built a little bit of rapport with, so I asked him, you know, very sort of forthright, you know, 
what is it about this that you don't understand? You know, why are you taking these eggs and don't you comprehend that if you do this, there's not going to be any turtles on this beach in two generations? And the story that he responded with completely shifted the paradigm for me almost instantaneously. And the actions that we took following that were radically different. So essentially the story he described was one that you hear over and over again of you know really extreme poverty and the fact that if they didn't take these eggs and sell them at the market, they couldn't afford to buy food for their kids. You know, they were, you know, sort of a, a, an issue uh, of lack of access to employment, of infrastructure, of opportunity. And really the only thing they could do was go and work on American-owned trimping boats, getting paid a dollar a day to drag all of this stuff out of the ocean and ship it north. And so they had total comprehension of the impact that they were having and they were very aware of the relative short-termism of the actions that they were taking, but they were completely trapped. So I took that story and that knowledge and toddled back up to the centre and basically we then started in a community engagement mode or we intended a community enablement mode to try and build those pathways of access and build opportunities and you know, really then sort of do our own educating of ourselves as to, you know, there's not a combative effort going on here. Like there needs to be a concerted effort to try and enable and, and change the dialogue and the, the paradigm for everybody. So feel free to re reflect on that if, if you'd like. Otherwise, it's just kind of I'll, I'll give you one from my own lived experience and the way that I had to reframe my own questioning of myself. So these are the two questions that I'd ask you. And, and these are you know, the intention of these questions is to transition us towards two of the sort of the, the really interesting dialogues that I'm really curious to explore with you, which is your role at Black Duck Foods and your role in an Indigenous enterprise as a non-Indigenous person. So two questions are this. One is, what is the role you choose to play, which is one of my favourite questions to ask people to ask themselves. And the other one is a question that we a collective of coaches that I'm involved in, the Climate Coaching Alliance, we often start by asking ourselves, which is, what is ours to do? And I think that those those could be two interesting questions to look at the role that you're playing in this enterprise, you know, this movement, you know, this sort of purpose of um, enabling Indigenous enterprise and lifting awareness of Indigenous culture and the role it has to play in the, the Australian story overall. And then what is ours to do? What is the role of non-Indigenous Australians in essentially joining the endeavour that you're playing? My role at Black Duck, we sort of step back and we go, we have a 65,000-year-old continuously living culture, oldest in the world. And we, as non-Indigenous government, business and like, create a framework that's non-Indigenous. It's non-welcoming, um, it's non-appreciative, and it's fraught with a lot of danger. And we expect to have uh, Indigenous peoples, Indigenous organisations step into that framework. It's a parcel of work that's been terribly neglected, sort of cultural framework in terms of how do businesses operate. And plenty of businesses out there say, no, no, we engage and we employ, we've, we've created our own Indigenous department within a non-Indigenous organisation, which creates challenges because what it's saying is 
we value the optics of your culture, but we don't necessarily value culture because we plonked it in within constraint. So the important part of my role is that I get invited into a Indigenous framework and that's what governs what I do and, and I enact that. And I bring in a certain suite of skills within to that framework and that's not to say that could not be got from somebody Indigenous. But I was chosen and, and went through a process and, and came in with that. And I think what that also carries is a notion that whilst I would never presume to be part of that culture, I have an understanding of that cultural framework and a respect for how that framework operates and that I'm the person being invited into it. And so I can act in some ways as a bit of a bridge between the two cultures because I'm not here to talk about 65,000-year-old history from somebody that's that – there's plenty of great storytellers out there and that would be ignorant of me, it would be culturally inappropriate and it would be, be foolish. And, and that's not what people want to hear. They don't need a white fella telling you all about black fella stuff. You need a couple of white fellas who go, I've been invited in and I have a, an appreciation of the complexity of what that is. And what I understand is what you're trying to do is diminish that diminish that value and I'm a white fella arguing and talking back and sharing stories with other white fellas to say if you want to come to this party there's a bit of a shared sort of storyline so my role in some ways is actually be a bit of an interpreter a linguist in terms of that white fella to white fella interaction and making people a bit more aware so when they do have an interaction, they come a little bit more informed and a little bit better equipped to think about what they're actually looking at. You know, and there's, there's sort of a, a couple of expressions. I, I, I borrow one that is a, probably the best description of actually how a lot of government policy works and arguably some corporate policy is that, you know, there's this underlying belief if you put enough pressure on a black fella, they're all hoping a white fella pops out. Now, as crude as that might sound, there's a lot of evidence to back it up. And it's sort of this notion that we don't respect that culture. We don't see any value in it. And we might give lip service to it, but we've set up these frameworks that undermine it. And, you know, as a somebody that understands finance, I look at Indigenous cultures, the greatest asset Australia has, but it's one of the probably the, the laziest on our national balance sheet. You know, we don't appreciate the value of what it is. And, and in that lack of appreciation, we, we advertise our ignorance. And, you know, ignorant people just keep on advertising their ignorance by talking more. So there's this notion of, you know, getting people to better understand how they could come into that world and appreciate it. You move from your framework into Indigenous framework. And I think there's this, there's this opportunity to, to, to reflect on what that means with your actions. And it comes back to that comment about, you know, I get a lot of emails about III. Well, that's sort of borne out in other things like 1% of Indigenous people benefit economically from Bush Tucker. And Bush Tucker in itself is a frame that arguably could be seen as framing 65,000 years of traditional agriculture and traditional foods is something that's a bit obscure and novel. It could be construed that. And I'm not here to, to lecture on the power of words, but from my perspective of having used words 
in competition. There's certain words that you can frame in a way that diminishes the competition without having to denigrate it openly. And being able to use words like that diminishes something that should be held up in awe um, and just in terms of its the, the resilience of a culture that's kept the yarn going for 65,000-plus years, something that every day we should be celebrating and, and we take it hard. So it's a bit of the storytelling I hope that I can share not with black fellas, but with actually white fellas, and say, you know what, Warumpi Band were onto something when they said black fella, white fella, sort of, you know, it doesn't matter so long as you're a good fella. That's a really important sort of thing to sort of base on, and you know, taking your philosophy from a sort of a 1980s rock band is not a bad thing anyway, because it makes it real. But it's an approach to say, actually, white fellas, stop trying to be a black fella, just be a better white fella. You know, and, and being better means being understanding and, and stop trying to take your agenda into something. Be invited into that. And, and if you're not invited in, it's sort of saying something to you. You're not telling the right yarn or you're pretty transparent that you're full of shit. And there's plenty of shit going around. You know, we all see it. And it doesn't mean that I'm right. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not right all the time, arguably, but it just means there's an intent in the actions and if I try 100 things and I get 10 things sort of going in the right direction, I'm hoping the 90 that I've sort of got wrong, I'm refining to get better at. So that's sort of that approach of where I sort of sit within the, the black duck role. And, and it was agreed up front that it, it's a finite role as well and transition to make sure it's a, a good, safe space for people to come in and, and take over what I do and with the hope that you know, I don't think I, you don't ever leave these sorts of opportunities. You just um, get paid less and less, maybe. <laughs> you, move, <laughs> you move out. <laughs> you transition into the volunteer role. No, it, it, there's an opportunity to share that yarn and, and it'll get, I'll get uh, you know, I'll move on to the next thing, you know, and I'm getting old enough that I keep talking about, you know, this opportunity to set up such an incredible network across the nation that is a grow nomad, you could go from town to town and, and, and eat the traditional produce and, and language and hear that story and, and that has a regional economic development talk to it. And that's all inspired by what's been there for 65,000 plus years. And that is, that is sort of saying we've got this asset, let's actually work collaboratively, work inclusively, work respectfully to develop that asset. And and that asset for for non-Indigenous Australians is Indigenous culture, you know, and, and, and that's an asset we could be sharing and in the process of being shared with if we're willing to be invited in. And that invitation will extend when we demonstrate that respect that's due to that sort of culture. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I mean, there, there was... That was beautiful and there's an enormous amount in there. I think there's something which I would imagine and project, you know, some of the audience are going to be curious about that I think is important for us to explore just to kind of expand the the context right now and then we can maybe sort of mm-hmm. lift into a bigger, you know, sort of perspective. So I think right now, can you just say a little bit about the work that Black Duck are doing and the work that Bruce Pascoe is doing and from there we can launch into what is this, you know, sort of big, enormous potentially globally if we talk about First Nations peoples outside of Australia, but what what's the work that Black Duck are doing and how might that then expand and translate into a bigger frame? I guess Black Duck's a social enterprise that formed out of a book that Bruce wrote and Bruce is a many, many talented um, fellow and, and 
he opened our eyes to a, a lot of stories and connected a lot of dots. And, you know, there was a map produced back in 1974 by Norman Tyndale, the Tyndale Arc, that talked about 30% of the nation being a grain belt. Yeah, exactly. Everybody shakes their head. Wow. So that yarn's been around for 45-something years, um, and it took Bruce's book, Dark Emu, and probably his journey to get to that book as well, to expose us to some parts of the story that we'd never heard. You know, the unknown unknowns. Who would have thought that a nation, you know, the oldest living culture would have had a food system that probably supported them in trade and, and well-being uh, for 65,000 years plus that involved a grain system? Who would have thunk that, you know? Maybe grain only came when wheat arrived. You, know, you sort of reflect and go, geez. We really weren't thinking much, yeah. you know. So yeah. there's, there's sort of this, yeah, well, that's bloody obvious, but it wasn't obvious until Bruce wrote a book and pulled a lot of that thread together and sort of showcased what that yarn is and the potential of that yarn. So Black Duck was sort of born a lot of that in terms of, well, this story is redesigning, but how do we catalyse a bit of the action? So we've we're, we're sort of focused on traditional agricultural systems and to a certain extent, Whilst it doesn't narrow the field of what we do, there's a focus certainly on the grains because of the extent, the opportunity for Indigenous people across the nation. And the other part of that is, is the tubers, the sort of the Murnong is obviously um, famous from the book in terms of it's a feature on the front, but there's a whole yam story and, and most cultures have that and there's aspects of that being women's story, so there's an opportunity for women's economic development. So there's sort of a, there's a food sort of, area that we're interested in but it doesn't exclude um, anything really it's sort of a, a key interest of ours that's what we say we're, we're into and it's also creating economic development for indigenous peoples and and that's not by that that's us immediately by obviously employing indigenous workforce um, but it's also sort of showcasing how it could be you know a way it could be done and so we talk about a social enterprise but we also frame that within we're set up with a cultural license to operate through the Ewan community. You know, so the, the board actually responsible to Ewan community and, and that's between the, the Indigenous directors and that community um, manage that relationship. That's not one that I look to get involved in and that's theirs and that's their yarn and that's their story and, and that's the way it ought to be. And as a general manager, I just get to go and make operationally see how I can support the team just make that happen. And that's sort of what we do, but the, the aspect of what we're trying to do is also we do it within our own farm gate and, and we run out of Bruce's property near Malakuta. and that's a lot of that rediscovery. There's a whole lot we, we've got to re, readapt some of the story, relearn some of the story and apply that story. So there's a lot of that work going on and that's also a place of transformation and we see what the empowerment of what we're trying to do, do on the workforces that come to come to us, not only those employed by us, but others that sort of visit or, or come and share a bit of a yarn on the property. They, they see something material in, in what we're trying to do. So there's a, a focus on what we're doing within the farm gate. Um, and then there's sort of this focus about how we can assist catalyse change outside the farm gate. So I mentioned I'm standing because I've spent quite a bit of time driving and that's to get out there and share a bit of a yarn. So it's, it's again, we're not out there telling people what to do. We're just telling them a bit of a yarn of what we're finding and, and that's helping other mobs sort of go, hmm, shit, there is a grain story. An old auntie or aunt used to talk about that. And I was on the phone the other day with a wonderful 
uh, woman doing, Wiradjuri woman doing some incredible language work. And, um, you know, she mentioned that, you know, Wiradjuri have 40 different names for grass, just in terms of not species, but just of grass. And sort of tells you, you know, they, they are monitoring grass and, 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 and when it was ripe or when the seed had fallen, when it was good to harvest. And, and that complexity sort of say, well, obviously, yeah, obviously that sort of leads to that this part of this food story. So it's it's sort of getting out there and, and sharing the yarn and it's, again, yeah, some people will hear it and go, yep, yeah, that's something we can do, or some people might not. And there's aspects of some communities got to rediscover their own sort of food yarn and it might not be grains or tubers, there's something else to go do. But it's this notion of if we can share a story, do we have the ability to actually try and catalyse interest around, you know, reinvigorating the original grain system, which, you know, covers, you know, Tyndale sort of said 30%, a lot of ethnobotanists said he missed a lot, yeah, in a fair bit of Victoria, you're talking 40, 50% of the nation possibly is our grain belt. So what we're not talking about a small industry development opportunity here. We're talking about 5% of the wheat market would be aspirational in terms of let's start that as a target and let's see if we can't because the beauty about native grains is that they're drought resistant. They respond really well to fires, fire regime, and there's a bit of a story there. They're endemic to Australia, so they actually grow really well here. Um, they help with soil carbon, you know, but importantly, they help with re-establishing the validity and respect for a culture that that has that yarn, has that continuity. And, and it's about the utility and function of what that grain system is. It's not just a grain system. It's actually part of a whole model of country which involves heritage, which involves language, which involves people, which involves everything that a food system should do and everything that an environmental system does, and it doesn't pit them against each other. In fact, it's one whole system. And we get back to this notion that it's all these systems. And when we start bifurcating agriculture and environment, we set up a conflict. And we've got to get back and going. And I, I know politicians struggle to talk about more than one portfolio, but it's the interactions of all these things that we've got to better understand. And you can't pit these things against each other because then we end up eating food that are out of dead soil, you know, and that's not sustainable. So not sustainable and certainly rapidly becoming more unsustainable as population grows. You know, so there's a, you know, we talk about commons, you know, Garrick Harden sort of onto something when he's talking about the tragedy of the commons, about the function and utility of things. So we've got to sort of get to grips with, with what we've got as our commons, which is our nation and, and the abuse that we make of that. And so, you know, we're... We're part of a story that says, here's a thing we could do. It's not the thing. We're not the only story in town. But, you know, we're willing and we get supported to not only share what we're doing on the farm but share what we're doing outside of the farm. And that's a real part, an important part of the yarn because there's a lot of people out there that haven't heard it or or, or don't know how to distill it into the way that they operate. Um, and if we keep yarning, we get an opportunity to keep sort of getting out there and it's not left just to me. It's, you know, everybody talks. I mean, it's plenty of good talking. Yeah, no. When you're watching the grass grow, you've got, you got opportunity to talk. Yeah. You know, it's beauty. Yeah. You know? And it's you know, it's lovely. I, I get to say, you know, what's your, what's your business? I get to watch the grass grow. Right? <laughs> That's not bad. That's a that's that, bad. That, yeah. That's a lovely moniker to put to put on yourself and and to name your role as that. That is, it's an observation mm. role. It's a respectful role. Mm. No, thank you. I mean, that was a beautiful 
story, a beautiful depiction, uh, you know, with so many connotations for what the opportunities are here. I think this is a thing that's always fascinated me as a slightly informed white fella, you know, who is doing everything I can to, you know, kind of perpetuate and accelerate the journey of understanding and kind of offsetting of ignorance, you know, that I have. But it's with this integrated systemic, you know, sort of welcoming of everything that was here before colonization, if we just kind of throw that, you know, sort of term out there just, you know, for, for fun. I think, you know, there are potential solutions to so many of the complex catastrophic problems, you know, that are rapidly advancing, right? You know, we talk about food security, you know, we talk about climatic resilience, you know, we talk about bringing cultures that are increasingly fragmented and disparate, you know, within nations together with shared meaning and common ground. I mean, there's all of that, you know, in what you've just described, um, as well as an opportunity for economic development, access to opportunity, enablement, sustainability, all of this stuff, right? Mm. You can distill it. People say, well, you must be doing lots of things. Now we're just caring for country. And in that, there's a whole multitude of things, but we don't pit them against each other. Yeah. And that's sort of a different frame. And, you know, it comes back to the storytelling approach. When we start telling stories, we're opening up our minds to to manage multiple threads, whereas sort of questioning we just want one thing. So when we start opening ourselves up to the complexity of a story and the beauty, the richness of that story and the cosmos of that story, we're actually opening our heads up to conceive and 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 understand what we're actually intending on doing and how we make some balancing acts and and sometimes when we distill these things into simple bite-size sort of actions it's because we're not opening ourselves up to understand the full complexity of the the situation we're in sort of this more holistic thinking so it's, you know, there's a, there's a challenge there in sort of saying we've got so many multiple problems, you know, there's one solution, you just care for country, you know. And if we sort of start with those sorts of ideals and, and do that, I just see that there's this opportunity to, to weave that, that sort of thinking back into a lot more of what we do. You know, if we're looking at these sort of single-issue problems, whether it's homelessness or, or other things, we look at them... We say well, we're going to solve homelessness by just building houses, but you haven't, you know. There's there's more to homelessness in terms of well, what about community and all those sorts of aspects. So there's these these complexities that we try and distill down to simple actions, because that's the box I got to tick. You know, I've I've got my outputs. I've built more houses. It's the homeless person's fault for not going in and staying in that house. So I've I've shifted blame. You know, yeah. victim blaming, which is topical at the moment, but. It's it's a real big issue and it's because of ignorance that we don't actually understand or if we do, we choose not to articulate those sorts of solutions. So it means maybe sometimes we, we talk a lot more, but that's sort of the frame, the, the, the holistic notion and a lot of people love, and I perceive this in some, a lot of the language from being some, I guess, attuned to it, with Indigenous culture, they love the deficit model, you know, because it's a great way to operate. You, you sort of keep people down. And, I, you know, talking asset models, it really changes the game because it's sort of, oh, hang on, that means I've got to appreciate and understand and involve and 
broaden my knowledge. Whereas I just try, I'm in here, I'm helping them by fixing their problem, you know. Well, their problem sort of was one stemmed through a lot of ignorance and it's not their problem, it's our problem. So it's white fellas. So you've got, to, you've got to step back and it's not fix their problem. We've got to fix our own problems of what we've been doing. Yeah. And that's that. And that's sort of the part where we all got to reflect about where we take this and, and we can go as far as we can go when we're invited into that space. And then we've also got to acknowledge we 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 when we're not no longer invited, then then, you know, then that's when we move on and we, we go do something else in our journey. Um and there's no time horizon. We are as good for for as what we're good for which sometimes challenges people who are looking for the cradle to the grave job or they're looking for sort of, you know, they didn't appreciate me. That's just because you don't understand, you know. I'm, you, you should be there as for, for a while, you know. Enjoy it and celebrate it for as long as you're useful because then there's another person that might have different skills to the next evolution in this very big long yarn. Yeah. And, and, and treasure the opportunity of being part of, of that in so much as that you are contributing to what you've been invited to contribute to. And then the, you know, all parties end. Now, the invitation doesn't say, you know, turn up at seven and, and it's endless. Until the end of time. Yeah, exactly. Though I think there's probably been a few parties where some of the attendees have thought that, uh, <laughs> that somebody's had to pull the plug on the music. Um, but, you know, that just celebrate that. So it's a different sort of perspective that, you know, let's move ourselves back into an asset and appreciation and with that flows a lot more constructive thought, which destabilizes an industry that's made a lot of money out of, you know, focusing on the deficit and, and some of the languages around that. So, Yeah, I mean, what I get out of that is, you know, the old adage of if you want to change the world, what are you going to change about yourself? Yeah, yeah that, massively. That, that's, you know, where, do, where do you start? And that catalyst for change can happen. And, you know, it happened in my life sort of at different stages. And I don't think it's one part that changed it. You know, somebody talks about astronaut effects. You get your blast off and you sort of look back and see the Earth. Yeah, well, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to blast off and, and have that sort of experience. But I think for me, it's been a, a build. Um, and that build just keeps informing. And I, you know, I look forward to what the next thing offers me because I think of the way we're going, I'll probably have to work till I'm about 80. So I'm really looking forward to the, those next stages of what this journey takes me and, and you know, where, where I play a role in interacting with whomever. Yeah. Um, where that, that they in the yarn, they see some value in what I can do. Yeah. When somebody perceives value in you, that's also really empowering because that's what it's about and it's just not the one thing. You know, there's a whole package that I bring. Some of it's good. Some of it is improving. Um, and some of it's sort of, you know, still sitting on the fence. And that's part of this beauty about all this sort of stuff where we evolve and we learn and we develop. And I'm far from informed, but, I'm, you know, I'm trying to check myself to be better informed in a whole lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. A chem degree didn't necessarily set me up as well in this space as it could have. Sure. But I'm learning. If somebody is listening to this and they recognise, you know, that the sort of the major transformation that is required to move into, you know, more of the realising of the opportunity that you've described so eloquently today, 
but they're focusing on themselves and they're thinking about what can I change myself at an individual level? How do I start to mobilize towards this kind of transformation? What are the things that you would suggest somebody could just start with considering? It's a bit like somebody listening to this and saying, you know, that's exactly what I want to do. That's actually, this should be the stop. It's like somebody saying, I want to be in politics. Yeah, you're not the right person then. It should be something that comes to you, you know, so so you've got to be prepared that you might not ever get involved because you're not ready, you're not culturally equipped and you're not invited. You know, some people just as for much as they want to be involved in this sort of stuff, I have no doubt, but unless the invitation comes, just accept that that won't happen. But that's not a problem about you and it's not a problem about where you think you want to go and who you want to help. And, and it's just that invitation doesn't come and we all find something else to do. So I'd be less inclined to say, you know, listen to this and, and embark on your journey. Just listen to this and, and just become more knowledgeable, just become more aware. And sometimes it that will just happen. And, and some of that awareness comes through the networks you build and, and how you create this sort of network of people that sort of come across your skill sets and, and that will align with actions because what I do today might not be relevant tomorrow and that's a whole different skill set. And it's about what you do to equip yourself for what that is going to be. And, you know, that the old dog new tricks, you know, it, it, it should be the calling card for everybody sort of listening now it's that you might not be equipped now but you probably will be some time and there's this great opportunity to learn and somewhere along the lines that learning will, will you'll have an intersect and you know what that intersection looks like will be determined sometime down in the future because the beauty about systems is a little bit chaotic and that's part of the richness of life you know we love biodiversity we love a little bit of chaos in the world and the world sort of hends towards entropy so if you if you're trying to map out your your next 10 years a bit hard but if you build yourself up and and equip yourself to step into that journey when it's right then that's a great thing and it's a wonderful thing and and then at some point it won't be right and you'll step off but it makes you no lesser a person so I think that's sort of the opportunity. I think just reflect back and say it's unfortunately it's not about you and it's not about your timing when you think you ought to do this. There's a whole lot of other things that got to happen. And as much as we all think we're the most important person in the world, maybe we're not. So let's hang back and, and somehow the world will get on without us saving it and so will a whole lot of other people. So listening to this, uh, you know, I would just take counsel that if you stand back it might come to you. But it might not, but something else might appear that's just as rewarding and just as enlightening. And out of that, there'll be this sort of ripple into another world. And you might well end up having really powerful, indirect impacts on things that you'd already intended to, but you've come to it in a completely different way. And I thought I'd reflect on my own journey. You know, I worked as, you know, manufacturing grease for Shell and then got into a whole lot of investment banking. And, and that's not sort of maybe the normal trajectory for somebody getting into community development, but it brought me a set of skill sets where I can sit at a table and bring that conversation to a broader discussion and talk about things. And for sometimes it's just talking about a common language of money. Yeah? And that's a language that everybody sort of understands and it's about how do we, how do we talk that one language? And I come at it from sort of the, the social enterprise angle, but it's the same sort of language that somebody's looking for a return on investment. And it's about marrying up that language. And so 
that's my skill set. That's a table I get to have an impact in. Um, it's not, you know, going out and walking through paddocks and identifying native grasses. You know, I think most of the guys know that I've could pick a grass and pick a shrub and pick a tree, um, and that's sort of where my biological sort of expertise finishes. So they don't necessarily come to me for a whole lot of distinguishing between the different native grasses, but they also understand that's not my yarn. Mm. You know, there's a whole lot of other people that have got that skill set. Mine is a bit sort of land somewhere else, but we do share the same vision. I think sort of reflect on what your what your skills are, you know, and, and don't try and be something that you're not and don't diminish the value that you've already got and, and where it might come into play. It might come in tomorrow, might be come down 10 years' time, might not ever that you thought about, but on reflection you probably had an impact along the line and it could be just on the way you interact with your own children. You know, and that passing on that yarn, and they become very powerful in in terms of their ability to influence change that you might not have, but you've imparted this openness and this willingness and this engagement and this understanding and this humility at a dinner table, and your your children or those around you sort of view that, and that sets them up on 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 a stage. And don't diminish that it all happens to happen within your own lifetime. It's a there's a long yarn, you know. You talk about 65,000 years plus of culture. Let's stop trying to distill it within one person's lifetime of influencing that, and we can't, but we're all part of a long yarn and we just enjoy the, the time we get to be invited into that yarn. Yeah. Thank you again. That was fantastic. There's dialogue that I have with clients and, and, and leaders who are trying to figure out their journey and, and, and their pathway ahead and, you know, I take a similar approach in in in, in counselling, essentially a, a resting position, and then reflecting on what I describe as a circular view of their experience. So you know, we're increasingly familiar with the terminology of circular economies, and that's fundamentally about no waste and having a closed system. And I think the idea of not having any wasted experience and the way that you described yours, you know, it's stuff that's you know beneficial now and there's stuff that's improving and then there's stuff that's on the fence you know it's in a sort of a ready position it's waiting for the time that it can be reused and repurposed and redeployed it may never be used in finance they call about real options and real options are basically the financial value of choice so your career the more choice you embed in your career the more choice you embed in the landscape the more valuable it is you might not ever use it and one of the greatest examples uh gas-fired power stations, they're, not, they're basically built not to turn on, but the option is to turn them on when the price of electricity gets to 10000 So they turn on probably seven times a year when there's an outage or you know, extreme weather event, but they make an awful lot of money in between selling somebody else the choice to turn them on when they need it. You do that to yourself, you can become your own you know, option, real option, because you're embedding yourself with all this choice, your breadth and your skills to do something, you can think about the landscape as the same sort of thing. The more you embed in that, you, you, the more you embed in the, the ability of things to have choice and, and to turn on for different reasons um, makes it more valuable. And this is sort of understanding you don't know when, so I can keep on investing in myself to be able to respond to different things as they appear. And so that's this sort of notion, what's the motivation to be open? You become more personally valuable because you can do different things. 
or certainly go into an interview and tell people you could do different things. <laughs> I think that's a great culmination of you know, a very broad yarn that we've had this morning. Uh, look, I mean, I'll include links to Black Duck Foods and to Desert Media. Media. Is there anything else, any you know, reference or resource or any other sort of space that you would recommend people that are curious about informing themselves and finding out more about anything that we've discussed today that they could orientate themselves towards? Yeah, I'll leave it with a question. So okay. here's, the, here's the hypocrisy in some of what I say, but the best um, question I like to, to ask people is, what was Australia's first export industry? Go find that out. I will write down the answer. <laughs> it, won't, it will not be for the podcast. So people go, sure. go find that out and pick up what that might be. And immediately for a number of people, changes their whole perspective on a little bit of Australia because they hear something they've never heard before, they learn something they never learnt before, and it gives a whole new extension to the world. So when we close this, I'll check all the mics are off before I give you to the answer. Perfect. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure. talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. What a story that was, right? I mean... I'd only had a few interactions with Chris previous to standing in front of the microphone with him in the studio in Sydney. And to be frank, I wasn't really sure what to expect, but there was so much depth and provocation and you know, thoughtfulness to his dialogue. Uh, and I hope in the conversation that we uh, created there that that's left you with a lot to reflect on and think about. Uh, and as somebody who's you know, deeply curious about Aboriginal culture and you know, have my own uh, you know, sort of views and perspectives uh, and have had some interactions with it, uh, you know, I learned a lot there. Uh, and I think there's certainly a few things that are going to reframe the way that I'm looking um, at Aboriginal culture and First Nations Indigenous culture the world over. So just to reflect back on a on a couple of key points, uh, you know, I, I think one of the one of the most interesting things for me about Chris's journey and the you know the vulnerability and humility with which you know he expresses it is yeah he is unconventional when you look at you know, skill sets and experiences and, and pathways into doing this kind of work. Uh, but I think that that really adds to the value that he's creating. And as he said on so many occasions, you know his perspective you know coming from banking uh, and even from engineering you know he, that really enables him to to serve as this interpreter between worlds um and maybe that's something we need more of uh, so yeah his his point about relating how do you relate and use your skills to build a better world and essentially there's many different pathways that we can look at doing that from and I think this is this is perhaps one of the, the controversial points that exists in many causes and movements this point that he made around morality and the moral argument for. And certainly we come up against this a lot in the, the discussions that I have you know, within climate-orientated forums. Should we be focused on the moral perspective that we should do whatever it is that we're trying to get people to engage with? Um, the important thing is the action. The important thing is that what needs to be done gets done. Um, Perhaps maybe we are fixating overly on bringing everybody's motivations to act into accordance with our perspectives on why they should act. Um, 
And as Chris says, really what we want is the outcome. Um, so to use his specific words, you know, morals don't necessarily guide everyone's decisions making, and we need to broaden the audience by broadening the, com broadening the conversation and expanding the language. And I've reflected a lot on that point since making the original recording with him. And I, I think there's a lot to unpack there and something that potentially we might discuss here in more detail. Um, and then it was into this long, expansive dialogue around the common ground and the shared ground. And yeah, reflecting back on that point that Victoria Foster made in the US election reflection that we had last year. Um, and from there into story. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate it. it was a bit of back and forth and tussle between the inquirer over here and the storyteller you know, on the other side of the, the recording desk. Um, but I think we got there, you know, in, in terms of just really understanding really the power of story and the, the presence of questions and where questions need to come from in order to be relevant in this kind of movement and in this kind of cultural discourse. And I think really the summation towards the end of that that Chris came up with, that not everybody is going to change. Not everyone is going to listen or share or work towards common ground. Um, but everybody can, in their own time and in their own way and in their own means, come to that point from lots of different pathways, as he has. And I think that, again, that was a really well-made point. And then the final one I'm going to rest on here is this whole notion of caring for country. And this, this was the back half of the conversation, really. Um, and you know, this, this moves me greatly as somebody who grew up in a rural part of England and now lives in, a, in a, what's called a regional part of Australia. And I think, I think Chris is absolutely right. I think to an extent the solution is as simple as caring for country and caring for ocean. Uh, and you know, just this primary value, which for some becomes a virtue of caring, I think that fundamentally is it. And <laughs> I think if we can bring more people into living that value, I think we'll be, we'll be making some significant progressive steps along the pathway to lead to make our world better. So I'm going to leave it there for today. There's many other points that could be made, but that's already been a long and complex journey through the yarn with Chris. So I anticipate you've already got a lot to reflect on. I hope I've added something uh, you know, in this, this brief summation at the end now. But as always, if you have a question, please reach out, reach out to me, reach out to Chris. Um, you know, we're, we're still tossing around this idea. Uh, we've had a few responses so far around the idea of, of us having some kind of live forum to interact with you. Um, so stand by for that. Uh, we definitely would like to hear from more of you before we come to making a final decision. So reach out through the socials or send, send me an email, which I've now included in the show notes there as well for you. We'd love to hear, would you like us to do a clubhouse? Would you like us to run some YouTube live stuff? Would you like that to be with me or with the guests? We've had a couple of guests, uh, you know, sort of listen themselves and, and say, yep, happy to, happy to contribute. So let us know what you think. Uh, you know, if, if, if we do get a real appetite to do this, we might start in the, the sort of the intermission between season three and four, which is going to be sort of through July and August this year uh, so look forward to it then but we'd really like to deliver something which is basically what you want and what's going to add some value to your journey and help you rise into and step forward 
and accelerate and amplify your leadership to make the world better. So let us know what you want and how we can help you. But for now, thank you. Thank you for your time and attention. As always, be well, lead well, care for country, and make our world better. I'll see you again soon. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. world.